Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their spleen about history and what we get wrong. The podcast that opens the tomb of truth and curses lazy myths to a painful and suffering death. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my fellow traveller in therapy, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week, dear ragers, we're digging around for long-buried legends and peeling back the skin of history to get right to the bone. And to guide us on this trans-temporal tomb raid, we are joined by osteoarchaeologist and project officer for the Heritage Burial Service at Oxford Archaeology, as well as associate lecturer at Oxford Brookes University, Dr. Lauren McIntyre. Lauren... Welcome to History Rage. Hello, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Feeling angry? Um, I'm I'm building up to it. I can say you're sounding very happy. I'm feeling pretty chipper Ooh. at the moment, but let's see what happens. <laughs> oh, we can soon get your blood pressure up. <laughs> I mean, we'll show you don't we'll take show much. You our Twitter feed for a start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you came to us recommended by James Wright, our season three rager who uh, raged about uh, clockwise staircases in castles of all the niche subjects to get into. Oh, I bet he did. <laughs> yeah, at length. At length. It was excellent. Um, but beyond that, we don't really know you. So can you give our pitchfork-wielding mob of ragers uh, an insight <laughs> into you, your work, and, and how you ended up doing this? Yeah, it's um, it's been a slightly meandering path, I think. Um, I mean, uh, I, I always wanted to... Well, actually, originally I started wanting to dig up dinosaurs and then like rapidly realized when I was a kid that fossils are really boring. Um, so, <laughs> so I changed my mind and decided I wanted to do archaeology. And I was a field archaeologist for a while, like after I finished at university and stuff. And then, um, I ended up working on a cemetery excavation mm. and like absolutely loved excavating skeletons, which is probably not something that everybody's into. Um, and yeah, so it just kind of went from there really. And, and then sort of, done a lot of toing and froing trying to get work doing this because it's really hard um yeah. and so like fluctuating between doing that and like self-employed stuff and like working as a field archaeologist and things and then um I was very very fortunate um seven years ago to get um to get a contract at OA where I am now and so um I'm a full-time bone botherer which is great <laughs> I actually see you using the technical terms there yeah. as well <laughs> So, was it always a thing that you thought, because I appreciate, yes, you want to dig up dinosaurs, because who doesn't want to dig up dinosaurs? Dinosaurs are just cool, but they're also really rare. Yeah, and especially in this country, it's not like you're falling over like T-Rex skeletons in like Rotherham or anything. Um, But yeah, so so it's your kind of chosen career path pretty much all the way throughout. Um, You just changed from giant lizards to Victorian orphans. I mean, um, pretty much. I mean, I guess if you want to nitpick, like, archaeologists don't dig up dinosaurs, which you could probably do a whole, like, rage podcast on, because we get asked that all the time, and it's complete 
bollocks. Um, so archaeologists only like working periods of um, time where there's uh, modern humans. Um, but yeah, I mean, effectively, um, yeah, it's, it's very similar to being a paleontologist, just we work in, in more uh, modern time frames, that's all. Yeah, and everything you have has less teeth. Sorry, fewer <laughs> yeah. teeth. My apologies to people who come on and complain about grammar. Okay, so while we've got you on the subject of bones and bodies, because obviously it's bones and bodies that you've come onto History Rage to rage about. So let's kick right into this then. So, Lauren, would you please tell our uh, mob of History Ragers what you wish people would just stop believing? So there's this like all-pervading belief um, that like people in the past were super sure and died really young and I can kind of see where it's come from but it's not true and it doesn't seem to matter how much people like myself or archaeologists or whatever um are, like how much time we spend trying to like get rid of this idea um it just sticks around and and I hate it <laughs> <laughs> so so we're talking here like that whole thing of like medieval people are short and and I cite, yeah. I cite medieval because I started out in medieval history and you kind of get this all all the time. It's like medieval people are short, you know. Okay, everybody was dead by the age of 30. Yeah, exactly. And, everybody was dead by 30. Like where has that come from? Yeah. So so just just very basically as I kind of outline then yeah, mm-hmm. let's have a bit of the reality there. So if these people weren't sure, what are they looking like? Who are they? Okay, I mean, so I actually, I do have figures written down. And I've, come, I've come prepared. All right, so now... You can tell you're an academic. <laughs> the, so the average heights of men and women in the UK at the moment. So average height for men is five foot nine. So 175 centimetres if, if you work in centimetres. Um, for women, it's five foot three. Uh, which is actually a lot shorter than I thought mm. it was. Um, and it, so that's 161.6 centimeters. So bear in mind, right? These are modern heights. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. What would you perceive to be short based on that? You have to bear in mind, I was raised by my mother who was four foot 11. So I have a very, <laughs> very low, you know, low bar for, yeah, and I wasn't allowed to use the word short. Um, I would say, are you talking a short person? I would be in the five foot three, five foot two. You know, they take 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 the modern man, the height of a modern woman, being the short one. Yeah. Um. So okay, get this. Um. There's been a massive study um a few years ago done by Oxford University looking at stature data for like archaeological skeletons from England over like the last two thousand years, and they concluded that average Roman uh, Romano-British men were of an average height five foot five. Right, that's that's tall. So Roman period, right? So that's only four inches shorter than average height now in two thousand years. Yeah, that's that that's pretty surprising. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, I mean that's a long period of time. Like the heights that people grow to is is based on tons of different stuff. So like genetics, like whether you're getting the right nutrition, all sorts of other stuff. Whether you're sick when you're growing up, when you're a kid, and and loads of things. Um, and so whether or not people are like reaching their maximum potential height is is another thing. Um, but by and large, people are not like all walking around like like dwarves at Lord of the Rings or whatever. We're not like we're not thinking that people like in the prehistoric period are all walking around and they're four foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> like, so yeah, I don't know where it's come from. So yeah, people's heights do fluctuate slightly. And so, for example, that same study. So we're looking in the Roman period, and they do look like uh, the, the data that I was looking at earlier on. It did all seem to be for men. So I don't have any female data for this, unfortunately. Um, so Roman period, we're looking at men five foot five. Uh, medieval period, so that for this uh, medieval period, it's about 12th century, yeah. five foot six average, um, sort of between 1400 and 1600. We're looking at about five foot seven. And then by the time you get to 1700-ish, that's gone down actually quite a bit to about four foot five and a half. And then it fluctuates a lot, like especially over the industrial period, because like there's so much going on. But um, yeah, like I don't... 
I personally, and the, these are only averages as well. Like, I don't think that they're particularly short. And um, yeah, it just really annoys me that everybody, everybody thinks that. So changing myth then, we get that, we, we get that old myth again, going back to the medieval, that everybody's dead uh-huh. by 30. Yeah. <laughs> so, so go on, expand. So the reason that people tend to think that is because um, they're thinking about average age death. And a lot of like, um, I don't know, studies, TV programs, whatever, um, like looking into, for example, life expectancy in the medieval period. Yeah, all right, they might have an average life expectancy of 30 years. But that's because the average is massively brought down by super high infant mortality. Yeah. If you If you manage to be alive over the age of five years, you're doing pretty well and you're probably going to live like... Not, I mean, not to a hundred, yeah. but um, but you're going to have a decent lifespan. I mean, like if you can skip the plague, yeah. If you can, if you can survive, uh, one the uh, the so the mortality rates um, for infants in uh, like in say the medieval period or like uh, like the our past or yeah. whatever. Um, if you can make it past the age of two that's great if you can make it past the age of five even better like we have say um i've I've been working on a project looking at a load of um 18th 19th century populations at the moment and i mean we have like burial records for people who've lived well into their 90s mm. and you can see it like if you walk around old victorian cemeteries and stuff you can see like gravestone inscriptions that say oh so-and-so lived to be 85 90 90 to whatever it's not um and so i think that people cling on to this kind of um this what they're actually thinking about is the average age at death and it's just that that's quite low but that's not it doesn't mean that everybody was like carking it when they were 30 well yeah because i I live probably about five miles away from battlefield of Towton, and it was one of Mm -hmm. the so one of the first kind of battles that i went into in depth and study and found that the yorkist archer commander was 72 yeah, see, that's like a decent age. Like, that, I don't expect to get that far. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's 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 what it is. It's um, it's the whole average, and people can't really see beyond that. But if these myths are so easily disproved by just logically thinking them through and seeing what the data actually says, how have these myths come about? Honestly, I wish I could tell you. I don't know if um. I think there's probably yeah. a few different strands to it. I mean, I think part of it is um so um I th- I think archaeologists could probably be better like public engagers and communicators for a start. I think there's a lot of us that are just terrible at doing it. Also, I think that um when it comes to things like putting out sometimes quite scientific information things into the public domain, these like press releases or whatever um, get picked up by various news outlets. I think a lot of the news outlets are really bad at reporting it. Yeah. And what I've noticed as well is like, say there'll be a a, a BBC news article, for example, on uh, a new archaeological project that's released some results. Even if they do a half decent job of reporting on it, which which they don't very often this article then you can see it getting picked up in subsequent days by other news outlets and it's just like a copy and paste job and it turns almost into like a chinese whisper sort of situation where um you can see the further the further in time you get away from the original article like the art- subsequent articles that are coming out are like downgraded in quality and so i think that's part of it but then also um on the other hand you think about I, I think there's like a general rule that um, in terms of like uh, research communication and things, what is actually um, a commonly held public opinion tends to be round about 10 years behind what people mm. sort of at the cliff face doing this research are actually thinking about. So it takes a hell of a lot of time for all this stuff to sort of filter through into public consciousness and what have you, which is another reason why we need to be better at communicating this stuff, right? Because, I mean, really, it is our job to be telling people properly. So it's not, I'm not just saying, oh, everybody's thick and they don't understand it. I think that the onus is also on us to be, like, making a better job of this. Do you know what I think doesn't help? And I'm going to get, you know, I'm possibly going to get sued here. <laughs> English oh, heritage. <laughs> oh, no, guys. it's nothing against yes. them as an organisation. But if you look at what English heritage have, 
they've got an awful lot of castle ruins with an awful lot of really short doorways. (laughs) You know what? That is actually true. (laughs) Low ceilings in buildings. Yeah, and this stuff just kind of like filters out of, you know, how, you know, you can't be looking at people who are an average of five foot, you know, seven because... They're, they're all going through doors that are five foot three. What the hell? I should have asked James, right? Yeah, I was going to say, we need to get James back on and ask him about this. Because uh, cause now I have questions. There's that row of medieval houses in York. And all of the houses, all the doors and windows are really low. Because the modern mm. street's been built up. And modern pavements and modern tarmac have been built up. So the door is the same height it's always been. And from the outside, it looks tiny. Yeah, good answer. Now we don't need to get a building's archaeology yeah, back on, do we? Bye. Concluded. Okay, so getting let's getting back to uh, osteoarchaeology uh-huh. and bone bothering. Yes. What does osteoarchaeology tell us about the past, and and how do you go about finding this out? I mean, on, quite honestly, it's bloody amazing. Like it's it's really such a privilege to be able to like work with um human remains and um i mean if you think about like archaeology um it's all about like the study of the human past there's not really any more direct way of investigating that than actually looking at the physical remains of the people that were living there and it's it's amazing what skeletons can tell us i mean other than all your sort of like baseline demographic data like age and sex and how tall people were and all that stuff Mm. um and then we could start looking at like diseases and how healthy they were and like how like whether people were suffering accidents like what sort of trauma they were sustaining and all that sort of thing um these are all sort of things that we can look at like just macroscopically so just by looking at the skeletons yourself like using your eyes and like your sort of or your training expertise and experience that you've undergone to sort of recognize when there's these skeletal changes but now sort of scientific technology is developing so fast that um, we can there's all these new scientific techniques that um, we can use to, to tell things about people so for example did you know that um we can now use a test to uh, which uses tooth enamel which will tell you what sex a skeleton is okay that's amazing right how did you do this beforehand I mean, we still do do sex estimation the traditional way, looking at the bones, because, I mean, obviously a lot of these scientific tests, like they do cost and you need somebody who knows how to do them to be able to do it. And and we do try and limit like the amount of destructive analysis that we do on skeletons. So obviously, like if you have to destroy a bit of a tooth in order to be able to do this test, then um, you have to weigh up whether it's worth doing that or not if you can tell what sex skeleton is just from looking at the bones. So like at the moment, uh, like my day to day, I would be looking at things like the uh, shape and size of different bits of the pelvis and bits of the skull and things like that. And we can get a pretty good idea of sex just by looking at those. But then obviously there's going to be cases where you can't do that because like the skeletons say fragmented or it's incomplete or it's a juvenile because we can't tell sex from juvenile remains because they're not skeletally mature. So in that case, it's perfectly possible to get a little fragment of tooth enamel, send it off to a peptide specialist and they tell you what sex person is. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, that is amazing, yeah. I mean, what other techniques are you using to to find out, you know, all the information that you can dig out of a skeleton? I mean, like all sorts of stuff. I mean, DNA is obviously like really big now. There's like such, there's huge, huge DNA studies. Like we're, we're constantly getting requests at work for people doing DNA testing and like that. Isotopes is really big as well. So again, looking at either... Um, like isotope ratios within bones or teeth um and you can see where people grew up when they were children um you can see what sort of dietary composition people had um there's a lot of people using lead isotopes at the moment so you can use as a proxy to see whether people were growing up in uh, sort of polluted environments or whether they were living um away from things like lead which probably suggests they were living rurally and stuff like that all sorts of things yeah, and and so you're you're going well beyond things like cause of death here. 
Yeah, I mean, cause of death is actually quite difficult to tell from a skeleton. Um, again, actually, maybe this is something I should get angry about. Um, <laughs> so uh, another thing that, pe- that, that people tend to think about what I do as my job, osteology, is that, oh, you can find out how a skeleton died. And yeah, you can, like in uh, maybe a small proportion of cases. But if you think about all the stuff that can kill you, if it doesn't affect your skeleton, I can't see it. So yeah. say if like, you die of heart disease... I'm not. I'm not going to be able to pick that up because it's it's not affecting your bones. Yeah, um, I mean, you can look at one of the Towton bodies and go, yeah, yeah, got a, got got a hammer it. around the back of the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can see like if somebody's like being stabbed in the face or um, being Richard the Thirded or whatever. Yeah, you can have a fair old uh, guess at what's gone on there. But um, but a lot of the time, they ironically they look pretty healthy except for the fact they're dead. And there's no skin or yeah. anything else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, they look fine. Yeah. <laughs> like you work within heritage burial services. Uh-huh. So what what sort of things are Oxford archaeology being tasked to do? So um, we're uh, commercial archaeologists, uh, we're, which means that we're developer funded. So effectively, what that means is. It's it's a legal requirement as part of the um, normal planning process that archaeologists like myself have to go in and investigate sites before uh, people are allowed to build stuff. So we'll go in before somebody builds a housing estate or a new road or widens an existing road or builds a shopping centre or whatever. And we'll go and do all the preliminary work and then all the mitigation work checking if there is any archaeology and if there is archaeology then we sort of deal with it all record it we tend to work under this sort of preservation by record thing which means eventually all the archaeology will be destroyed but we should have made a comprehensive enough record of it that we know what was there if that makes sense yeah so what what's been your most exciting find Oh, um, for sure. I, I worked up in, uh, York for how long ago? 2007, I think it was, uh, with, uh, with my friend and colleague, Alex Sutheran. And, uh, we were working in a medieval churchyard. Uh, and it, obviously I was there because it was a cemetery. And, uh, we found 10 Civil War mass graves full of 113 dead guys. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we think that they were um, from the Siege of York in 1644. We think they were parliamentary uh, soldiers. Wow. With that, if you take away all the grave goods and artifacts and things that come with the burial, um, uh-huh. that, is there much a difference between a Victorian skeleton and, say, a Saxon skeleton? But people so in the names don't fit neatly in these, in these distinctions, do they? No, so like if if you take away all the um all all the gubbins that you may find with a skeleton, like um like coffins or pots, grave goods, all that jazz. Um, I mean, human skeletons have not changed in I don't know two hundred thousand years or something. Um, the the only thing that would probably be different if you didn't have all the material culture is going to be potentially the burial position. But I mean, if you get um a medieval period burial that's just like laid out flat supine extended um and then you had a victorian burial in the same position and they didn't have any of their requisite stuff with them you're not going to be able to tell the difference between them without like a radiocarbon date um so yeah humans like biologically have not really changed in terms of their skeletons like over over the over the time they've been modern humans, so I mean, archaeology is cool because um, we we can use all the stuff that comes with them for like dating and and other things too. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's not like. Um, it makes me laugh as well. Like pe- people think that um, have this idea that um, that populations seem to change with like their time periods. So you know when you hear people talking about like, "Ooh, these are these are Romans," or "Ooh, these are Vikings," or whatever. It's not like everybody just like woke up one day and were like, "Oh, we're not Roman anymore." We're like, we're post yeah. we're post Romans now. Twenty yeah. third of August, yeah. fourteen eighty four. Yeah. We're now Tudors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that annoys me. All the buildings uh, paint themselves white. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
like, uh, it's like nobody wakes up on, like, what is it, like, 28th of June, 1838, and they're like, oh, we're all Victorian now, she's got a crown. <laughs> yeah, all put it on stovepipe hats and <laughs> yeah. giant Farthingdales. And... Hang on a second, let me take off my, uh, let me take off my wig and put this new wig on. And, yeah, this uh, huge yeah. crinoline. Yeah. Yeah, so pe- yeah. you know, pe- people themselves actually they 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 don't fit into these, dare I say, historian categories of Tudors and Victorians. Yeah, and they're aimed more at societies than than people. I think that um, the way that um, and uh, we're we're definitely like trying to put this more across now, uh, especially with a lot of these like DNA studies and things that are, are happening in archaeology, that um, that populations tend to be like quite fluid, and there's like a lot of um, there's like a gradual change and like moving around and fluctuating people migrating in and out of places um it's not we don't populations don't fit into these neat like little shoe boxes that come with each time period if that makes sense um it's everything just sort of flows into each other and then there's like a myriad of uh, of little changes fluctuating around and as i say people coming in and out and migration on all different scales from like people coming over from different countries or even continents to live somewhere uh down to like micro migrations where you've got people moving from like a suburban area into a town because they're looking for work or um they i don't know they've they've sent their kids off to go and find a job because they can't employ them on the farm anymore or whatever um yeah so um, i i don't like that idea that um that people are just sort of shoehorned into this little box one time period they're like oh we're all we're all vikings now and then one day they're like oh no chuck your horned hat away we're not vikings anymore we're I don't know, whatever. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, I mean, we have, we have mentioned kind of one biological change that goes on, although it kind of sidesteps these, these shoeboxes, because we've talked about that gradual increase in average height yeah 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 that's a that's over time that have are there any other kind of biological changes that you can see stretch across from say rome through to now that that's happened throughout time um in this oh that's a good question um i mean i i I think that we we do see um we do see a lot of similar stuff from much earlier time periods right through till like post medieval early modern stuff so um things like diseases we we see we see not not every disease but um we do see skeletal evidence of some diseases right from as far back as say i don't know neolithic period so prehistory um right right through to modern day um the degree to which we can chart that, uh, we, we might not know how accurate it is. So, for example, if we've not got as many skeletons that we can look at, we might be able to see one case or something, but that doesn't necessarily tell us, like, just from one case, like, how much that disease was around. But as soon as you start getting into time periods where we do have access to, like, some more skeletal populations, so, for example, your Roman period, we've got a lot of skeletons from the Roman period in this country. We can start to get a better idea of, like, disease rates and the types of diseases that are around. And then as time progresses, we can 
see whether they these get more prevalent or whether they drop off a bit and then new diseases might appear. So for example, like leprosy is a really interesting one because um, I think everybody characteristically thinks of leprosy as being like a really medieval disease. Um, and I mean, there was a hell of a lot of it kicking around in the medieval period. I mean, like you were probably tripping over lepers or people that everybody thought were lepers because they didn't understand mm-hmm. it that well necessarily. But actually, um, when you look at the data, we have evidence of leprosy in this country from like the Roman period. It's just that when people are writing about it, they don't necessarily identify it as that because it doesn't become like recognized as a disease until much later on. Um, But looking at the bones, you can see you've got skeletons that have got those requisite changes that you need for a diagnosis. Um, So how do you build the details of a civilization from just the skeletons if there are no other artifacts to go with? I mean, it's difficult if you've just got a skeleton, like one skeleton on its own is going to tell you a lot about that individual person, Mm -hmm. but how much you can actually project that out into something wider is is debatable um what i think is really good about archaeology is that you can you can look at your one skeleton and then you can bring in all these other different strands of evidence from other places so we can look at the skeleton we can look at if that skeleton had any finds with it any bits of pot any uh, artifacts any like bits of uh, like belt buckles and sort of personal items with it. Uh, we can look at the grave context and we can examine that to see um, physically how that person was buried. But we can also look for any evidence of funerary rites and like customs and burial traditions and things like that. And then we can look at that burial, that um, that one burial unit in terms of the wider site that it's in. And we can see, is this a funerary landscape? Is this like an isolated burial that's put somewhere, um, like say in the middle of a domestic setting? Is it somewhere else are we in a rural area or we're in somewhere that was considered an urban area and then we can start bringing in all the different things about like the other maybe finds features buildings have we got agricultural systems nearby all this kind of stuff um, and that's even before you get to things like historical records if, if you're working within an archaeological time period the way you're lucky enough to have access to things like that because obviously sometimes like when you're working in prehistoric context you, you can't use all that stuff um, but yeah so I think it's really nice that in archaeology you can like build on all these different layers of information from things um, as minute as looking at um, soil micromorphology or looking at pollen grains right through to looking at sort of building construction techniques and then you can start to use all these different things to like build up a richer picture of what your site is and what's going on and what the people were like and like what their life experience would have been. We, we had a previous rager on Carolyn Nicolay who was talking about everything Iron Age and mm-hmm. basically everything kind of pre-Roman. Uh, and one of the things that she said was, to, to, like, honestly, we don't really know because it was only the Romans that wrote anything down. Mm-hmm. So you you watch any TV archaeology show mm-hmm. and they, they'll uncover some form of body and go, oh, this must be of somebody of great importance. <laughs> How the hell do we know? Well, we don't. They could have just had the space, couldn't they? (laughs) Yeah, we'll put him in there. I mean, I know it's big, but, you know, he's not going anywhere. Um, What the hell? Yeah, I mean, it's a nightmare. And I mean, you won't, um, you won't believe as well, like how much sort of like forensic TV shows, like take information that I'd use day to day and just like completely do the wrong stuff with it. And then people think that that's like, I get asked all the time, like, oh, is your job like on bones? Like, no, it's fucking not. It's, uh, <laughs> bones is terrible. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, by and large, I, I think that there are a lot of good archaeology TV programs out there. Um, and obviously, like the people working on some of these things have got a lot of experience and you sort of get a feel when you're the archaeologist, uh, like what what sort of context and things you're working within, like as you're excavating it. But that said, you can't just look at somebody and think, oh, that grave's a bit big. They must have been really important. You know, it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> You might have to, like, in reality, it might take you, like, a year of working on that site, um, either excavating it or researching into the various things that you found to come to those sorts of conclusions. So Mm. if you get somebody like, I mean, I don't want to set Tony Robinson, but he was the person, I'm only saying him because he immediately sprung to mind. put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very sorry if he's listening to this. But um, but somebody will literally just, like, point at a hole in the ground and be like, oh, yeah, that grave's massive. They must 
must have been important. Yeah, we have no idea. And also, we don't know, um, like, what what people in that time period would have viewed as important. Like, we can't, we have to try not to, like, project our sort of cultural systems and belief systems and things like that onto past people because they might have thought in a completely different way to us. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like... Yeah, we didn't. We just don't know. Just, no, we don't. Just because somebody's been buried with a stack load of stuff just meant they had a stack load of stuff. It's like, um, like when people. I mean, this. I suppose this is quite an old idea in many ways. But this, like, oh, if a skeleton's got a sword, it must be a warrior burial and all that stuff. Like, um, my husband's got a sword. Oh, he's not a warrior. He's a railway yeah. engineer. Kyle has a whole harness <laughs> of armor. <laughs> exactly. And if you were buried in your armor, does that mean that you were a knight? Like. Kyle, I know I'm not <laughs> going to be around for the day, but that should so go in your funeral that you want to be buried in the armour, just to confuse archaeologists. Uh, yes, why Why not? Yes. I'm going to get buried with my 303 rifle and then I could die as a veteran of the Second World War or something, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that's the, that's it to be, that, you draw the same conclusion from that that we apply to historical cultures. He was buried with a sword, must be a warrior. Buried with a Second World yeah. War rifle, must be a Second mm-hmm. World War soldier. Must be. There's no other explanation. Nope. There's nothing. (laughs) Right. This is where we're caught in controversy there in terms of uh, altering future archaeology. I'm I'm going to come in with this this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's all right. They've got to get get in line behind the Spitfire Mafia. Yeah. Oh, like Um, archaeologists are mouthy as well. Like they will let you know if they're cross. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but we won't understand anything they say, and that's (laughs) Um, right. Well, I'm going to dive in now with uh, it's today's controversy question, just to get the hate mail coming even further. Listener, I'm looking at the script, and I'm I'm going to hide already. So see ya. Okay, I'm going to come right out with it. Where, in your opinion? is the dividing line between archaeology and grave robbing. Okay, I would say that um, there's a few things. Grave robbing is for profit. So people coming along, emptying a grave out, not even necessarily bothering with a skeleton. Um, they may take the skeleton. I mean, that's that's a whole different thing. Um, but taking taking the lovely shiny things out of the grave and getting them on eBay, um, making a few quid off them, and not bothering about like any of the sort of leaving the person to rest, like um, hmm. even recording anything so that we know it was there. I mean, as as a person who does on a fairly regular basis after excavate human remains and remove people from their resting place um i do i do like to make the point that it's not something that we do unless we have to um i mean if if for example i'm working on a job and they find a burial and um if there's any way that the development could be changed in a way that means that that person's not disturbed then that would be the ideal outcome that rarely happens. I'd say that probably, um, that happens less than 1% of the time because obviously, um, developers and people, they've already got a lot of their plans in place. Um, they've already got everything decided. They've got their footprint marked out. They've got mm. their maximum working depth, um, uh, like decided. And so by and large, the easiest thing for them to do is to get rid of the burials that are in the way and i mean there's a lot of reasons why you can't do things like build a road on top of the cemetery um it's, it's not safe it's not respectful like there's all the sort of um in inner workings of for example laying a road you can't just do it on top of a cemetery um ethic ethically and sort of health and safety wise well structurally i mean you, you only have to look at any cemetery to see there is subsidence where coffins yeah, disappear like, and the ground just goes down. Yeah, I yeah. think that people get this idea that like, oh, the archaeologists want to come in and look at all this stuff, oh, and then somebody's going to build a housing estate there. It's like the people don't realise that like it's a legal requirement that we have to come in and move everything yeah. because you can't just build a housing estate on a cemetery, and not even just because of the film Poltergeist, you know. Yeah, it's an important factor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and also like then then you think, well, like if if somebody did 
say, oh, we're going to leave this cemetery there because like, we want all these people to stay in their lovely resting place that they were put in 800 years ago. And then somebody went and built a housing estate on top of it anyway. Would anyone want to live in those houses? <laughs> I mean, I would. It wouldn't bother me so much. But... Oh, yeah, that, is that a trick question? Yeah, if you just go digging around in your back garden. But um, like I, I, I think that they'd find it a hard sell. Um, oh yeah, that mm. back garden. Yeah, that's that used to be a cemetery. Oh what? No, no, we didn't excavate. Anything, <laughs> yeah, don't don't put any deep flower beds in. Just just as a word. Yeah, of don't. <laughs> yeah, don't like. Don't build yeah. an extension there. <laughs> it comes up in the comments of any Facebook, Twitter, pick your social media. Mm-hmm. article about an archaeological dig finding human remains. Oh, grave robbers. Oh, rest in peace. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The alternative, the alternative is they get ground to pieces by a JCB and then thrown in a skip. Unless an archaeologist yes. comes and does it carefully and respectfully. Surely. Exactly. Like that, They are the options. The options would be mm. move the development and leave the skeletons where they are. Well, that's not going to happen because too much money's already changed hands. Yeah. Um, Get crypt clearance in, which will literally just remove. There are crypt clearance companies. They don't just clear crypts. They'll also do like large scale burial ground excavation. But they will literally come in and move it with a machine. You can just let the builders do it, and they will also just move things by machine. But also because they're probably not used to dealing with vast quantities of human remains, they'll all have PTSD and be completely traumatized. Um, or option number four um, is to get your archaeologists in to come and do it properly and carefully and respectfully. Um, and then either the skeletons will be found a appropriate place for them to be stored, usually a museum, um, or in other circumstances, they will be reburied somewhere. And I think that's probably, mm. other, other than leaving them in place, that's probably the most like preferred option, mm. right? Like we come in and do it all nice by hand and make sure everybody keeps all their bits together. So taking... Okay, that guy that was buried with his sword and is obviously a, some form <laughs> yeah. of important warrior. Okay, taking that sword out, yeah. putting it on eBay, grave robbing. Yes, taking that sword out, giving it to the British Museum. Not. <laughs> I mean, define uh, technically depends where it's a sword from for a star. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> um, if it, if it's from like ancient Greece or something, like leave it there. <laughs> Probably in the British yeah. Museum already, if it's from yeah, ancient Greece. Yeah, I know. Um, but um, I, th- I think that the difference is, so um, the guy who's putting it on eBay um, is, is making some money off it, and then that sword is essentially going to a private collector who is either going to be the only person to look at it or him him or her, and, and a small collection of their friends are, the, are going to be the only people that ever see it again. The difference if it goes to a museum is um, there's there's no money changes hands. The archaeologists are not allowed to accept money for these things. They all, um, they're studied first. We learn as much about these artifacts as we can, and then they're carefully handed over to the museum uh, where they will most likely then be put on public display which means that all that information that we found out about them can be communicated to the public the public can go and look at these lovely things as well and appreciate them uh, and and they can receive the respect they deserve i mean obviously this doesn't happen to all artifacts because we all know that museums have got like vast storerooms that are absolutely jam-packed full of stuff that never goes on display because they've not got enough room yeah. but but um, at least with this, they still have all that information. We have all the things like the lovely archaeological reports and publications that are all freely and publicly accessible. Uh, and we can obviously use that information to, to learn about our human past as well. Well, I'm going to round off with the, the question that comes from left field here. <laughs> I do <laughs> okay. pick this up from, from your email signature more, more than anything else. Um, but uh, you, you proudly say on the bottom of your emails that you're on the subcommittee for the trading and sale of human remains. Now, can I just say, what the hell? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I should. Just... Pro- you see, now that you say it like that, it makes me think that we should change the name of the task force or something because that makes it sound like we're selling them and we're really not. Um, so, okay, so um, I am on the sub- on the Babio subcommittee for trading and sale of human remains. So, Babio is the British Association of Biological Anthropology and Osteoarchaeology, mm-hmm. and um, this subcommittee has actually been formed a few years ago by myself and. Uh, Trish Beers, who works at the Duckworth Lab in Cambridge University, and and a few other osteologists. And uh, what we are doing at the moment is we are doing research into the um, pretty sketchy 
trading and sale of human remains market in this country and also beyond because you would not believe like how many remain human remains are like sold especially on social media like instagram tiktok facebook marketplace all sorts seriously of stuff. yes there's absolutely tons of it and he's hideous like and the the sad thing is that there's like a horrible like legal loophole in the UK. So the I mean like legislation is very different depending on what countries you're looking at. But in the UK, technically, it is not illegal to sell human remains. You cannot legally own human remains mm. because they are a person or they are the remains of a person. But you can still technically sell them. And there's a hell of a lot of this goes on. And so we're trying to raise awareness in. The, with the general public as to why that is terrible and why the, wh- where these remains are coming from and, and also to try and stop it. What sort of things are being sold? Oh god, all sorts of stuff. Like anything from um, just like a random skull or a few bones on like, you, there's a lot of them on like auction websites and things um, through to remains that have been found that have been like turned into, in inverted commas, artwork for people to display in their houses. So, like, I've seen, say, uh, like, uh, femora, so like thigh bones, turned into things like walking sticks for people to use. And there's a lot of these, like, sort of curio, like, old curiosity shops on, like, TikTok and Instagram that uh, that are peddling all this stuff. Um, and the thing that makes me the most mad about it is you see in a, on a lot of these websites, they're saying that they're ethically procured. They're, <laughs> they're ethically procured human remains. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Um, and no Who donates their body to Facebook Marketplace. Really? Well, exactly. Is there a consent form for this? I don't think so. <laughs> That's the thing. Like the only way that something like that could be ethically ethically done is if you had a piece of paper from the person whose remains they were saying, like that they'd signed, saying that they were okay with this. And what people don't realise is that um, so where these human remains like coming from that are being sold is they're either old archaeological bits that have either been robbed out of the ground or like somebody's dad or granddad found way back when and has had in a cupboard and then somebody's found it when when the person's died and they've cleared their house out and they don't know what to do with them so they take them to an auction house who says oh yeah we can get you 400 quid for that um or they're like old medical specimens that teaching mm. institutions for some reason have got rid of and then they're just sort of like kicking around on bloody well not ebay because they're not they're not supposed to sell real human remains um but on things like instagram and and then artists like pick them up and make stuff out of them or just sell them as is or sell them to collectors and things like that and i mean do you have any idea where these things come from other than like archaeological ones like the well, medical specimens. No, but I'd, I'd imagine that where they say ethically sourced, basically at this stage means we didn't kill him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, so I think when, when people say ethically sourced, from what I can gather, is that they're medical specimens. And these people seem to think that because they're medical specimens, they they assume that they've been voluntarily donated for teaching or something. Mm. I mean, I think that even in that circumstance, if, say, if say like I donated my remains to a teaching institution, I'd want them to be used for teaching. I wouldn't want somebody to be selling them on bloody Instagram. Um, or making a walking stick yeah, out of your upper thigh. Yeah. But the, ter- the actual terrifying truth is that a lot of these sort of remains that were at teaching institutions they're actually people whose corpses have been trafficked from places like india and china and i mean like maybe they might be like it might be old trafficking so say it might be 18th 19th century but there's like people they uh, people used to go to places like india and pay poor people for their dead relatives so that they could ship their corpses to this country and render them down and use them as teaching specimens and that's where a lot of them come from well we used to do that ourselves in the 19th century with workhouses yeah 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 go go and claim go and claim that one and then off to the anatomist with you and so it's uh, a lot of these things are either born out of um, people giving money to poor, desperate people who are so hard up that they have to sell their dead relatives to make a few quid in order to be able to survive, or they are literally stolen from other countries and shipped here. So, I mean, I don't think that's really that ethical. I don't know about you. No. It's hideous, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. What do we what a, what a thing to end on. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a rather horrifying thought, Paul particularly, 
You know, when you go to military affairs and there's all those suspiciously recently dug up, say, German helmets and German belt buckles and yeah. dog tags and bits that have clearly come from somewhere. There's a lot yeah, of... Um, they were on somebody, weren't they? There's a lot of mass graves out in uh, Eastern Europe where all these stuff's coming from. There's going to be skeletons with them. Exactly. So they could be coming from places like that. And like there's um you do see these things come up occasionally on auction websites and we've actually been like working recently to um if if we see something that's up for auction online uh, at, at an auction house in in the UK, we have actually been contacting people and trying to make them a bit more aware of where these things mm. usually come from. And what we tend to say to people is if you can't prove the provenance of this um uh, these remains, we really really highly recommend that you yeah, take them yeah, off yeah. sale because they could come from anywhere it could be a robbed out archaeological site in this country it could be a robbed out war grave somewhere in europe mm. um it could be a, a poor trafficked person from somewhere on the indian subcontinent like god knows where they've come from and and nobody and nobody can prove it because you can bet your bottom dollar that the people that are selling them have no idea where they've come from either wow that's, that's opened my eyes <laughs> I'm so sorry this is a really grim thing to end on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fine. We are not, if we weren't prepared for grim, really, we shouldn't <laughs> have got you on. You know, we, we we started with robbed bodies and, you know, now our latest episode is robbed bodies. So, you know, yeah. full circle. Well, thank you very much, Lauren, because that's given us uh, plenty to dig into. Pun absolutely intended there. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Um, and to be fair, it, it's good to get some archaeologist involvement as well, because we can get a bit kind of like chaps on maps, military history, or, mm. or you know, for full on academia. And it, it's good to get out of that the, that kind of rut. So thank you very much. Have you, have you enjoyed it? I have. You're more than welcome. So if you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can start by checking out Oxford Archaeology themselves, and you can visit their website at oxfordarchaeology.com. And we're going to put that link into the show notes. And you can follow Lauren on Twitter at Nodding Goth. Uh, and I'm sure you'll get a whole load more bone bothering into your social media feed. But thank you very much, Lauren. Yes, thank you very You're much for welcome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping to meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, it'll get you the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the most coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. So thanks very much for listening, and until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.